0: Be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter number 6, we're continuing our journey through this gospel, finding and following Jesus. Mark chapter 6 will be in the first six verses of this text this morning. There's a phrase uh, that's used often in sports. It's called home court advantage. Home court advantage is, is the advantage the home team gets by playing in their home stadium in front of their home crowd. Of course, it's an advantage to play at home because they have the familiarity of their court or their field, the familiarity of their own locker room, their fans, their support system. Most of the time they don't have to travel before or after the game. That's why a team wants to play really good during the season so they can have home court advantage in the playoffs. For instance, they say the two hardest places to play And win in college basketball are, number one, Cameron Indoor Stadium. I wonder if anybody's ever been to Cameron Indoor Stadium. I've only watched games uh, from Duke University basketball on TV. But if I was an opposing team, I'd be very intimidated to play here because they're all dressed in white and blue. And they're like standing right over the, the court and they're bouncing up and down the entire game. They say it's a very hard place to go in and win. Then they say Allen Fieldhouse which is the home of the Kansas Jayhawks, which I don't personally cheer for. Um, I'll talk about my team here in just a moment. I'm saving the best for last. But, but at one point, it might still be the case, Alan Fieldhouse actually held a Guinness World Record for the loudest indoor stadium. And, and that, it's on my bucket list to go watch OU beat KU um, in that arena. Uh, but I will be waiting a long time. But you're not going to talk about football, are you? You don't want to talk about that. You guys only have a football team. Um, or gymnastics. I mean, we're better than you in gymnastics, too. And rowing. We're better than you in rowing as well. Um, don't get, and softball. We're ranked number one in girls softball. So we're not a one-trick pony, all right? We have other sports we're pretty good at, too. And wrestling. We're good at wrestling. Men rolling around in singlets. We're good at that. We're good at that. Um... I've been to Owen Field, which is the home of my Oklahoma Sooners since World War II. Did you know that Oklahoma Sooners have an unbelievable win-loss record at home? 347 wins and only 61 losses. That's impressive. That's impressive. Home court advantage I'm learning extends beyond sports, though. Um, For me, I have home court advantage when I preach at Fellowship Baptist Church. I can preach at a lot of other places and enjoy myself, but never enjoy myself as much as when I'm preaching to my church in this pulpit. There's just something about it. You could talk to a musician who plays an instrument, and I'm sure that most instrumentalists would prefer playing their instrument. Most vocalists would prefer singing on a stage that is familiar to them. Many ladies that go grocery shopping, you probably have one grocery store of choice that you like to go to. You know where everything is in that grocery store. Here's the truth. Everybody is more effective in the atmosphere where they are most familiar, where they're the most comfortable, where they receive the most support. When we talk about the ministry of Jesus, Nazareth would have been his home court. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town, made liberal Kansas look really big. Only 60 acres, probably didn't even have a stoplight. Everybody knew everybody. Jesus grew up in this small town helping the local carpenter who happened to be his dad. For 30 years, Jesus lived and worked in Nazareth. And around age 30, he started his earthly ministry, which is what we're studying in the book of Mark. Scripture tells us that when Jesus left Nazareth at age 30, he only came back to his hometown twice. Twice. And you would think that when he came home, they, they would have Main Street all decorated for a ticker tape parade to welcome back their hometown hero, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, right? But that wasn't the case with Jesus. Just because it was his home court doesn't mean he had home court advantage. In fact, in Nazareth, Jesus had home court Disadvantage. To give you an idea, the first time he went back home after leaving, he went to the local synagogue and he taught as a guest teacher. It's recorded for us in the book of Luke chapter 4. While he was teaching, he quoted an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. Then to close this message, he declared, I am that Messiah. The Son of God has come and I am the Son of God. And instead of the hometown crowd cheering and and applauding and supporting, they got angry. I want to give you a glimpse into how they treated Jesus the first time he went home in Luke chapter 4. It says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill wherein their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Thankfully, Jesus was fast. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. That's how they treated him the first time. Now a year later, in Mark chapter 6, he's going to come back to Nazareth again. I don't want to to skip past this implied point of the text. I want you to feel the magnitude of this simple act. Because if you went to a place and a people that tried to throw you off of a cliff, I doubt you'd go back again. But Jesus did. And Jesus didn't just come down to, to town and kind of hide away in his family's house. No, no, no. Jesus intentionally went back to the scene of the crime. In Mark chapter 6, a year later, he went back to the same synagogue, probably taught the same exact message. From a human point of view, the Lord's return to his hometown was foolish. It was forgiveful. It was potentially fatal. But from heaven's point of view, the Lord's return was a wonderful expression of his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love and his long suffering. He went back into harm's way. To give the hard-hearted people of his hometown another opportunity to believe and to repent and to be saved. Aren't you thankful we serve a God of second chances? I saw a vivid picture of grace hidden in the theology of a Dennis the Menace comic strip. That's where all good theology can be found. (laughs) Dennis was shown walking away from the Wilson's house with his friend Joey. And both both boys had their hands full of cookies. And Joey asked Dennis... What do we do to deserve this? And Dennis delivered an answer that was packed with truth. He said, look, Joey, Miss Wilson gives us cookies, not because we're nice, but because she's so nice. And that's our reality in Christ. We are beneficiaries of divine favor, not because we are so good, but because our God is so good. And in his goodness, he continues to give each of us second and third and fourth and fifth chances. Praise his name for that. But it's important to understand that the God of the second chance is also the God of the last chance. And the second time he would go back to Nazareth in Mark six, it would end up being his last. Now, you would think that when he went back for a second time. Maybe throughout the duration of a year of ministry in the regions of Galilee, he would have built up a little rapport and credibility. No doubt those in Nazareth, even in the small town that it was, would have got word of all the things Jesus was doing. Like in chapter 1 when he healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And the leprous man at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 when he healed the, the man of palsy and let him walk again. Chapter 4 when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 5 when he, when he, when he set the, the, the demoniac man into Decapolis free from those 6,000 demons. And then when he took Jairus' daughter who was dead and raised her back to life. He took the lady who had an issue of blood for 12 years and and, and she touched the hem of his garment and she was made whole. Not just physically but spiritually made whole. And word surely has gotten back to Nazareth and maybe by now Jesus would have a little bit of home court advantage. But we're going to see in our text that he doesn't. They still lack faith and in fact Jesus' claim to be the son of God offended them. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 6. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. This word offended, it means a stumbling block. It means they were getting tripped up. There was something about Jesus that they couldn't get past. What was it? Well, it was the fact that such mighty works could be done by somebody so familiar to them. They watched him grow up. They went to school with him. They played on the playground with him. Jesus and his dad built their house. Their familiarity with Jesus discredited him from being the Messiah, at least in their eyes. Think about it like this when you were young and your parents left for the evening and they they would usually leave one of your siblings in charge and a lot of times they would say it's the oldest sibling that is in charge that's the way it should be right but imagine that instead of leaving the oldest sibling in charge they left your younger sister in charge and they yeah and they ex- they expected you to obey your younger sister like you would obey them would you struggle with that You would be offended by that. You'd be tripped up by that. The fact that she was your younger sister would would discredit her in your eyes. You couldn't get over the fact that your younger sister is telling you what to do. You would be offended by that. And that's the idea of, of these people being offended by Jesus. They couldn't get past their familiarity with Jesus to the point that they could believe he was anything more than a carpenter. And at that moment, they began to ask him these degrading questions. How can a carpenter do these things? Now, they weren't against the vocation of of a carpenter. That wasn't the problem. They were just perplexed by how a blue-collared individual like Jesus, who didn't even attend rabbinical school, could teach the Bible with such power and authority. They asked, how can the son of Mary do these things? She was a poor girl from Nazareth, had nothing going for her. The Messiah is not going to come from her. Hey, how can Jesus do these things? But yet his sisters and brothers who are standing right over there, like James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, there's nothing special about them. How did he get all the special power? What's so unique about Jesus that he got what his brothers and sisters didn't get to them? Listen, please. Jesus was just the neighborhood kid they grew up with. The teenager they went to school with. The guy who grew old to be a good Bible teacher, but he was not actually the son of God. And look at how Jesus responded to their skepticism in verse four. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. You know what that is? That's an ancient proverb. Jesus quoted that proverb to basically affirm the general point that people don't don't miss this. People often neglect greatness in their midst because they become so easily enchanted with greatness from afar. Jerry Vine said it perfectly. An expert is just an ordinary person who comes from another town. And it's sad that, that the one place where Jesus should have had home court advantage, he didn't. The people who were most familiar with Jesus had the least amount of faith in Jesus. And sadly, the tendency of Jesus' hometown crowd is our tendency to this day. It's the tendency to let our familiarity with Christ Hinder our faith in Christ. Don't get me wrong. You ought to be as familiar with Jesus as you can possibly be. And you can never know Jesus too well. But what I found is that if we're not careful, our familiarity with Jesus can become an enemy to our faith. And those of us who know Jesus the most could actually be guilty of trusting him the least. Yeah, for some in here today, this could happen very easily because you've been around Jesus your whole life. Maybe even in this church. I mean, you're like me. You were brought to church before you're ever born. Nine months before you're ever born, you're in church. You're born and you got put in the nursery. Then in children's church and Sunday school and vacation Bible school and youth camps. And you were, you were brought to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night. When you are very familiar with Jesus today. And even though there are some of you who weren't raised in church, you're familiar with Jesus simply because you're a citizen of the United States of America. And the name God's on every dollar bill you, you spend, at least still he is. And the, and the name God is still in our Pledge of Allegiance, still written in our Constitution. And Bibles are, are sold at nearly every bookstore in the United States of America. You're very familiar with Jesus, whether you're raised in church or not. And we would all have this shared tendency to let that familiarity with Christ hinder our faith in Christ. So let me ask you very pointedly this morning, does Jesus have home court advantage in your heart? Or does he have home court disadvantage? Are you so familiar with Christ this morning that you've become apathetic towards Christ? You know, one of the the most obvious indicators of our familiarity hindering our faith is is when the extraordinary works of Christ around us become very ordinary. Philip Yancey, who wrote the book Finding God in Unexpected Places, told, told of his first visit to old faithful In Yellowstone National Park. I'm interested how many have seen Old Faithful before. Several of you have. He said this. I just want to read it to you. He said groups of tourists surrounded the geyser. Their video cameras trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. He said a large digital clock stood beside the spot predicting 24 minutes until the next eruption. When the digital clock reached one minute, they, along with everyone else in the diner, left their seats and rushed to the windows to see the big event. At the moment they left their tables, a crew of busboys and a crew of waiters immediately descended on the tables to refill water glasses and clear away dirty dishes. He wrote, when the geyser went off, the tourists oohed and awed and clicked the cameras. A few spontaneously applauded. But glancing back over his shoulder, Yancey saw that not a single waiter or a single busboy looked out the windows one time. Apparently old faithful, he said, had lost its power to impress them. I think you'd agree there's nothing ordinary, at least us in southwest Kansas, nothing ordinary about Old Faithful. It's extraordinary until you've seen it a lot of times. And then it means nothing anymore. And isn't that how the extraordinary works of God can become to those of us who are familiar with God? Hey, somebody can get gloriously saved and it's not that big a deal to us anymore. Somebody can get baptized and we're looking at our watch hoping the baptismal service doesn't interfere with our lunch. God could be moving in our hearts in a big way during the song service, but we're just looking around to see who showed up to church today and what they might be wearing. The Bible could be getting preached accurately and clearly and faithfully and passionately from anybody behind this pulpit, but we're either falling asleep or formulating our to-do list for the rest of the day. Hey, old faithful could be erupting in our midst, but because you've been to church for so long, because you know all the songs, because you've been to hundred baptism services before, because people just get saved on a regular basis in our ministry, you go on as if nothing ever happened. And that's when you know your familiarity with Christ has greatly hindered your faith in Christ. That's when you know Christ no longer has home court advantage in your heart. This is what happened in Nazareth. Look how Jesus responded in verse 5. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Did you notice the verse said he could do no mighty work? Oh, he could do some work. He healed a few sick folks. But he couldn't do a mighty work like he was able to do in other places. Meaning, Jesus wanted to do more for the people who knew him best. But he wouldn't because they let the familiarity hinder our faith. And that's the consequence of a lack of faith. We miss out on the mighty works of Christ. Say it this way. Our lack of faith in Christ will cause us to miss out on the mighty works of Christ. Would you imagine this? Jesus wanted to demonstrate his mighty power in Nazareth. But a lack of faith rendered him unwilling to do so. That means there was a blind man in Nazareth that perhaps had never seen his boy play sports. Jesus wanted to touch his eyes and give him that opportunity, but he couldn't. There was a demon-possessed woman in town who had been ostracized from her family, ripped away from her kids because she was crazy. Jesus wanted to give her a new future, put her in a right state of mind, but he couldn't. There was a child like Jairus' daughter that was sick and about to die. They called hospice in. Jesus wanted to go to her house and repeat in chapter 6 what he did in chapter 5, but he couldn't. Perhaps an elderly gentleman was dropped off at the synagogue every Saturday that, couldn't walk, that he couldn't walk. He, he couldn't work, so he begged for money. His family dropped him off early in the morning, picked him up late at night. And he did that every week. Jesus wanted to touch his leg so he could walk into that synagogue and hear the Old Testament preached. But he couldn't. I wonder today if there are any mighty works in our lives or in our families or in our church that God wants to do. But our lack of faith is rendering him unwilling. And I want to be clear. When I say a lack of faith, I'm not just talking about a lack of mental belief. Faith is not just a state of mind. Faith is a course of action. We can believe in our head all day long that God can, but it's not faith until that belief leads to a committed action. I wonder if there's a marriage in here today that God wants to heal and restore, but one or both spouses don't have the faith to forgive because forgiveness is just too risky. I wonder if there's a rebellious and wayward child that wants nothing to do with God anymore and God wants to do a mighty work in their life but mom and dad don't have enough faith to keep praying for his return. I wonder if there's somebody at your place of work today that God wants to use you to share the gospel with or to invite to Fellowship Baptist Church but you don't have the faith to risk rejection or bridge that conversation. I wonder if there's a mighty work that God wants to do by means of providing for your needs and blessing you in mighty ways. But you've yet to have the faith to start putting him first with your finances. I wonder if there's a little boy or a little girl that rode one of our bus routes this morning. And God wants to use them in a mighty way one day to be a preacher or a missionary. But God is waiting on you to have the faith to step up and give yourself to that ministry. Because God wants to use you to influence that little heart. I wonder if there's any mighty work in our church that we're missing out on because we don't have mighty faith in our midst. I wonder if there's some things God has not yet been able to do in Fellowship Baptist Church because we've become comfortable right where we're at. Here's the truth. In His grace, He might be doing some work in your life. He might be doing some work in your church. He might be doing some work in your home. But if we lack faith, He will not do a mighty work. It's not that he's incapable of doing mighty works. It's that our lack of faith causes him to be unwilling. Because to Jesus, it's morally wrong to do mighty works in a place or in a life or in a family or in a church that lacks faith. Oh, your lack of faith doesn't render him all of a sudden limited. He's all powerful, whether you believe it or not. But he becomes unwilling quick when you start. Believe and he can't do it. See, I think sometimes we underestimate the power of unbelief. Are you hearing me? We talk in church all the time about the power of belief, right? If you have faith, God will honor that. And we all say amen, but we don't talk about the power of unbelief very often. Because while God honors our faith, he also dishonors our lack of faith. I'll be clear, our faith doesn't guarantee that we'll get everything we want from the Lord. But our lack of faith does guarantee that we will not get much of anything from the Lord. See, here's what we learned today from this tragic text. It's very simple and I'm done. It's a serious warning. Those who let their familiarity with Christ hinder their faith in Christ will miss out on the mighty works of Christ. Some faith, some works. No faith, no works. Mighty faith, mighty works. It's incredibly sad to me to think that God was in the town of Nazareth in their synagogue and they still missed him. The son of God was in their midst, yet their lack of faith caused them to miss out on what he wanted to do in their lives. It's a story told of a wealthy couple. Their son had a a rare but life-threatening disease. As they researched treatment, they discovered the only living specialist in this area of illness lived overseas. He responded to their correspondence by claiming that he could not leave his busy practice to make the trip to the United States to care for their son. You can imagine their disappointment in receiving that kind of news. In the meantime, this same physician took ill under his own stress and strain. He had such demanding responsibilities that made him sick. So his own doctor recommended that he take a vacation. And he chose to take a vacation in America. And he chose to take a vacation in the city in America where this wealthy family was residing and where their sick son lived. He came to town discreetly. He rented an estate. He began his own recuperation. Every day for his own health, he would take this long, casual stroll down the road and back. One particular day, the, there, there were a lot of clouds overhead, kind of like today in Libra. He briefed his driver as to his route and what to do if it actually began to rain. So he, he got dropped off and he began to walk and, and it started raining. And so he just stepped up onto a nearby porch for shelter and he waited for his driver to rescue him. As he waited, the woman of the house noticed him and she directed her housekeeper to get that bum off her porch. Reluctantly, he went to the door and said, sir, I'm sorry, but the lady of the house has directed me to ask you off the porch before she calls the authorities. The doctor was offended, but he complied. And then he stood in the rain to wait for his driver to arrive. Soon the whole ordeal was over. The story says the doctor got so offended that he immediately packed his bags and left that city and went to another city. The next morning, the woman of the house let out a frightening, random scream as she sat at her breakfast table reading the newspaper. When she was finally able to get her composure, she confessed to her husband, the man who's able to heal our son was on our porch last night, and I turned him away. wonder what the response the citizens of Nazareth was the day after the events recorded in Mark chapter 6. I imagine the town herald standing in the gate of the city to declare the news. And the day's top story shocked the entire city when he heralded out loud, hometown healer driven away by unbelief. And I wonder how many times Jesus has been, been standing on your porch, ready to do a mighty work, but a lack of faith drove him away. I wonder how many times Jesus could only do some work in your life when he was capable and ready to do a mighty work in your life. But you missed it. I wonder if there's anybody in here. And Jesus is standing. He's standing at the porch of your heart. And he's knocking. You understand Jesus will never force his way into your living room. Never force his way into your life. But through these sermons every Sunday, you've heard this little knock on your heart's door. And it's Jesus standing at the porch. He's in Nazareth. He's ready to do a mighty work by way of salvation. He can forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, if you'll put your faith in. That's all you got to do. Have enough faith to trust in his finished work on the cross that he died for you. He was buried, but rose again so that you could have eternal life in heaven. And Jesus today, as he's been in the past Sundays, has been softly knocking on your door. How many Sundays are you going to drive him away? And yet he just keeps coming back because he loves you. But you never know when he'll give his last knock. He would never go back to Nazareth. And they missed out. The Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day brings forth. And today might be the last knock you get from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you drive him away? He's standing on your porch. Maybe you would drive him away because you are so familiar with the idea of salvation. You've been around it your whole life and you might think you're saved. But you know you're not. I sat in the living room of a lady not too long ago that believed her whole life she was saved. But when we showed her the gospel, she realized, wow, I've been trusting in the wrong thing. And she got gloriously saved in her living room. And it happens all the time. Maybe. You think, hey, I, I've been coming back to church and, 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 and my morality has increased and, and my good behaviors, my attitudes changed at work. like Church is really helping me. And the devil's duped you into thinking that that's salvation. Coming to church, getting familiar with the Bible again and getting familiar with church again, and getting familiar, familiar with the things. It's made you a better person. But hear me. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. Uh, he said morality can only keep you out of jail. But the blood of Jesus Christ can keep you out of hell. Morality will never save you from eternity in a devil's hell. The blood of Jesus can save you today. And Jesus Christ is on your porch. I'm pleading with you. Open your door. Do not drive him away. Some of you, he's on the porch of your marriage today. He's on the porch of your financial setback today. He's on the porch of, of, of your need for healing today. He's on the porch ready to give you peace and joy and blessing and provision and everything that he can give you from heaven. Don't drive him away. Because you get so familiar with church that now you're apathetic to what God wants to do in your life. Lord, help us. I found that when we don't give God home court advantage in our heart, he doesn't have advantage in our life. And so your lack of faith. Hear me, please. It's a big deal. And it will drive the Savior away. Not because he's incapable, but because you've rendered him unwilling. God help us today to have faith in a mighty Savior. To do a mighty work. Amen? Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.